the Askell Leaders Reading Podcast with Jeff Barton. Steve Mumby, good to talk to you. We're going to talk about your new book here, which has got um, an unusual title, which some might say smacks of a kind of enemy of promise a little bit, because, you know, we're all aspiring to perfect leadership. Yours is called imperfect leadership. So tell us, why would you call a book that? Okay, well, I've been leading large education organisations now for 17 years, three different ones, and I've come to the conclusion that the best way to describe my leadership is imperfect. And it's not something I'm ashamed of. It's actually something I'm proud of because I have a worry about this notion of perfect leadership. I think if you have this sense that you have to be a perfect leader, it'll do your head in. It'll make us physically or mentally ill. We'll never be good enough. And also, if we think we have to be perfect, then we won't devolve responsibility to others. We'll think we have to do it all ourselves because we have to be perfect. And then also, if we think we have to be perfect, we won't encourage people to step up into leadership because they think they have to be perfect too. And most people who step into leadership know they're not perfect, and that will put them off. So for all kinds of reasons, I think we should be celebrating imperfect leadership. Tell us a bit about why you decided to write the book, because, you know, I, I read lo- lots of books, uh, and I read lots of education books, and this one feels to me to do a number of things which you don't always see. So, one, it's got, as you've just been saying, something pretty introspective about it. So, in other words, you're saying, this this is how I was feeling. So, for example, you talk about, I think it's 2011 to 2012, and you say something like, my diary suggests that I was at my most confident, it was going to be the most difficult year. And you then kind of talk about that, and we'll talk about that. So it's got this sense of looking at yourself, but it then also does this survey of, of how the education system is changing, and you use those speeches that, the, that you did at the conference the National College to kind of look at the panorama. So you get this incredible mix of what's the big picture and what's the personal. What, it, have I characterised that right, right? Is that what you were trying to do? Uh, absolutely. Um, I, I, was, I was wanting to write about my leadership journey and in an honest way, because I think too many people write about their leadership journeys and say how good they are and, and what great things they did and how, how we should all learn from them. And mine was more about being really genuine about what I was feeling, how I struggled with some things, what mistakes I made, as well as what things went well, in an honest way, to kind of unwrap what leadership is about, warts and all. Uh, So I was trying to write in a very authentic way. That's the first thing. Secondly, I knew I'd made those 12 annual speeches. And a lot of people had said to me, well, you should try and publish those annual speeches. Uh, But then I thought, well, you can't just publish those annual speeches, you've got to put a context around them. So I ended up describing my own leadership journey and what was happening uh, around the country in in, in education in England at the time, uh, as well as the the speeches. So it's both the... It's it's national policy development, it's the 12 speeches, and it's my own leadership journey. Mm. And what comes through in in places there uh, is not just a love of music, because you've got lots of references to a whole range of different lyrics from songs... But also, um, and this will surprise people, I think, who see people in your kind of position, there is a core of vulnerability that comes through. So very early on in the book, you talk about being in Knowsley and suddenly seeing on the front page of uh, the local newspaper or, or whatever it was, you know, is this the worst education authority? And so, can we just go back to the Knowsley experience and then we'll kind of just follow through National College a little bit. T- t- tell us a bit about what, what it was you were doing in Knowsley and what Knowsley was like and how you learnt from that in terms of leadership in general and your own personally? Sure, great. Um, well, when I went to Nosey, I don't think I realised before I went how challenging 
uh, it was going to be. But when I went there, it's a small local authority. It only had 80 schools, uh, including primary and secondary, 80 schools. It was just outside of Liverpool. Uh, when I went there, we had the second worst GCSE results in the whole country. And after a year of my leadership, we had the worst GCSE results <laughs> in the whole country. And it was a really, um, I'll describe it as a dark night of the soul moment. And not the only dark night of the soul moment I've had in my leadership, but certainly one of them, where um, the, uh, the Daily Mail rang me up and they wanted to do a story on the worst local authority in the country. And the um, Liverpool Echo, the local newspaper, published a letter calling for my resignation because I was bringing disgrace upon the borough and I should, I should go. Uh, and um, even Radio Merseyside said I should just give up, it's hopeless. And so for someone who's sort of nine months into the job, you think, well, maybe I should give up, maybe I can't do this, maybe I'm not up to it. And I, I had a mentor, and one of the themes of the book is that asking for help and getting mentors and asking for help is a key aspect of good leadership. If I hadn't had a mentor, I might have given up but I did have a mentor who convinced me that I was doing the right things, I just needed more time. And so we, we began on the journey in Nosley, and we, in the end, we had quite a bit of success. You've always done that, haven't you? I remember talking to you when I got this job with Askell, and you talked about the importance of having not just one mentor, but having a number of people, perhaps from different backgrounds, so, so what, what is it that those people actually do for you? I mean, is it purely a kind of sounding board and saying, look, I'm, all, I'm across the front of the newspapers, what should I do? Or, 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 or is there something kind of deeper than that? OK, it's a great question. First of all, I, I really think it's important to choose your own mentor, not have a mentor given to you who may or may not be what you need. That's the first thing. Secondly, I mean, when I went to the National College... From, from Nosley, I was completely out of my depth in terms of knowing what to do. I didn't understand how the national system worked. I didn't understand how the political situation system worked. I was supposed to be now advising the Secretary of State on school leadership. I'd never even met a Secretary of State, never mind advise them on school leadership. So I felt completely out of my depth. The only thing you can do in that situation is ask for help. So it, when I went to the college, I got four mentors, all of whom had different skill sets and different expertise. I asked for help from Estelle Morris, who was a former Secretary of State, who could help me to understand how government worked, what, what uh, politicians would be thinking, how they would view me, and how I should operate within that environment. It was invaluable to have that kind of help. But I also asked for help from Tim Brighouse, because Tim was a kind of moral purpose, big, big strategy guy, and I knew that he would help me to think through big picture stuff whilst helping me to hold on to my values. And that proved to be invaluable too. And, and I asked for help from Tony McKay because he was the best networker I knew. He would introduce me to people who could do me harm or do me good. <laughs> but nevertheless, what, what was important is I knew them and I could work with them. So Tony helped me to get to these people. And finally, I asked for help from someone who had written the critical report on behalf of government about the National College. And I figured that if he knew what was wrong with it, he could help me to fix it. And they had all different expertise, different from mine. And as my time went through at the National College, I dropped one mentor and got another one because my, my needs were different and my, the expertise I was lacking was different. So you're constantly asking yourself, what help do I need? Have I got it internally? If I haven't got it internally, how do I get it externally? And is that shifting over time? And how, how does that work in practice then? How often would you speak to one of these mentors and, ha and how would you do that and how formal was it? It was very informal. It was normally over uh, a lunch or dinner. 
It would normally be three times a year, sometimes more often. Uh, they did it entirely voluntarily. Uh, I would I would bring the agenda, issues I wanted to talk about. I'd knew, know in advance, and I'd get them to, to challenge me, talk it through with me, and help me to resolve it. I chose issues... Uh, that they were that would be relevant to their expertise. So I choose different issues with a different mentor, and that's how I worked it. And when I went to uh, CFPT Education Development Trust, when I left the National College, I did exactly the same thing, but with different mentors. Mm. Let's talk about the National College. So the National College had been um, established uh, before before you went there, if I remember correctly. And you write you write about what you needed to do. Uh, when you arrived in the book, and we'll come back to that. But just, just remind us, what, what had been the original kind of concept around having a, a, a national college? Because I remember as a young head looking at it and thinking that there was something extraordinarily affirming about leadership, that there you had uh, a college and there you had the Prime Minister coming and welcoming a new, new cohort. What, what, what was it designed to do for the nation's leaders? It was set up when... Uh, Tony Blair, the, the then Prime Minister, was talking about education, education, education being his three priorities. And therefore a belief, if education was, a, was the priority, that you need to invest in school leadership. And actually, um, it was a huge, massive decision to invest in school leadership. In fact, at the time, it was by far, it was the only national leadership institute in the world uh, and certainly the biggest national leadership institute in the world for schools. Uh, and it was, it was uh, symbolic. Uh, it's, uh, it had a headquarters in Nottingham with a big, big building with, with a moat uh, and a lake. It was symbolic that here was a government that was saying, we're going to invest in school leadership and in their development. Now, some people reacted against that because they say, well, the money should be spent on more teachers or better resources in classrooms. And I understand that. But, but it did, for most people, especially when it was going well, help them to think that they were being valued and their role was being valued and that there was something there paid for by government for them and for their development. Now, you um, arrive at the National College and there is quite a big job of work to do. And you, you take a, what I, I remember uh, was a very interesting and symbolically significant decision that you are going to contact lots of heads and say, this is your college, tell me what we could do with it, something like that. And you write about it in the book. So just go back to those early days. What attracted you to apply for that role and what did you do in the early days? Um, well, uh, what attracted me to apply for the role was this notion that here was a government investing in leadership and in school leadership which is an incredible job to have, a developmental job to support and develop school leaders. I mean, it was I just amazed that even someone considered me to be, be worth interviewing, to be honest. And I was quite shocked when I got the job. But I was aware, especially when I started to dig into it a bit, that the National College at the time was a little bit cliquey. It was a little bit of a club and some people were in the club and close to the National College, but large numbers of school leaders had very little connection with the National College. And I felt that that was a big issue, and I wanted it to become our college for all school leaders, not just for some. And so I decided that one of the things I would do was um, telephone 500 school leaders in the first three months and ask them what they thought about the National College and get their advice as to what I should do in my new role. And I knew that would be really tough to do, time-wise. 
so I decided because it was going to be tough, I'd make a public announcement before I did it that I was going to do it. And so I made a speech at a conference before I started as CEO, just a few weeks before I started as CEO. I knew the Times Educational Supplement would be there in the audience, and they reported that I promised to make 500 phone calls in the first few months of the job. I did not know how hard that was going to be. When I was a director in Nosley, if I rang up a school in Nosley uh, and asked to speak to the head teacher, they normally put me through. As the new chief executive of the National College of School Leadership, who no one had ever heard of, um, I tried to phone school principals, and there were, the, the secretaries often wouldn't put me through, or they'd say I was trying to sell them something, or, or the, the head teacher was busy. So it was a massive effort. It, it was about 10 conversations every day for the first uh, two and a half months in the job. Uh, and um, had I not made the public promise, I wouldn't have done it. But I knew that I had to do it because I'd made the public promise, and it ended up being one of the most important things I did as a leader in those first few years, because it sent a message out that the new National College under my leadership would be a listening college and an engaging college that I wanted to become our college, not just the college in Nottingham. And what kind of things was the college therefore able to do on behalf of leaders in those early days? It, to be honest, it already had uh, great leadership programs, highly, highly effective ones. It had the National Professional Qualification for Headship already running successfully. It had uh, leading from the middle program for middle leaders in schools running successfully, and a program for serving heads running successfully. The problem was it was doing too much. It, it, it had lost its focus. It was running programs on technology. It was running programs on workforce development that weren't to do with leadership. And people were wondering, actually, what kind of organization was it? And what I tried to make sure it did, did was focusing on being a school leadership college for developing existing and future school leaders. And so we got rid of quite a lot of things and just focused on those things. In addition to that, we began to develop this notion that actually the National College should be helping to support system leadership, which was a new concept. And we worked closely with the London Challenge to uh, begin to connect consultant leaders with schools that were in the Keys to Success schools in London to support the leadership development of the London Challenge. And that proved to be really, really effective. And that developed our thinking. And then in addition to that, what we came up with was this concept of national support schools and national leaders of education and local leaders of education who were schools with capacity who were helping schools that needed help, at, at, not just at leadership level, but at all levels. And that was a big departure for the National College, but a big step forward for us, because there were two spin-offs to that. The first spin-off was government, which had been started to become a bit dubious about the National College, started to see the National College having a positive impact on struggling schools through this use of consultant leaders and national leaders and local leaders. But secondly, Schools that were, at the first, had thought that the National College wasn't for them, started to think that they, it was for them because they could be involved in the local leaders of education or the national leaders of education program too. So it had some positive spin-offs. So we focused on the day job of leadership development and we began to develop this notion of system leadership. 
And you, you, you write about your, your time there and you punctuate it with these speeches which show an increasing sense, I think, of confidence of a profession but also a kind of outward-looking sense of a profession which, through the college, is looking at international research into leadership and bringing that into the system. That's what it certainly felt like to me. And then we get to kind of 2010, 2011, and the, I remember actually being at the conference and listening to the tone of one of your speeches and there was a kind of chill wind uh, running through it because you were saying to us... You, people are going to have to relearn how to spend less money. How to, and, and you yourself, I think in 2011, I think you say in the book, found yourself 40% less funding and so on. So could we just look at that period, which was a very different political outlook and the impact that had on you and the leadership at the college? OK, it's a great question. Uh, I was appointed by a new Labour government uh, when Tony Blair was the Prime Minister and then through Gordon Brown and then... Uh, after 2010, David Cameron is the Prime Minister and Michael Gove is the Secretary of State, which is a very different approach to education. Uh, and um, a huge challenge for me personally, because could we reinvent the college to meet the needs of a new government, on the one hand, at the same time hold on to our moral purpose and our values and the things that, that are dear to us. And it's something in the book I wrestled with. Uh, if you read the book, you'll, you'll see that. Uh, and I asked myself some really tough questions. And the most important speech I ever made in my life was in 2010, shortly after uh, the, the coalition government had got into power and Michael Gove was uh, the Secretary of State. Only five or six weeks since the election, uh, Michael Gove was going to be in the audience. He was already announcing that other uh, non-departmental public bodies like ours were cl being closed by the government. Uh, and I had to decide what to say to this group of a 1,000 school leaders in the audience. And I knew Michael Gove was there too, and he would be following me with his speech. And I crafted a speech around servant leadership, which was one of the... The most well, the most important speech I ever made, because I was trying to pitch it that saying we are public servants, they are the government of the day. We, uh, we 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 mightn't agree with some of the things they're doing, but within the within the the realm of, of the law, um, we have to do what they say we should do with, within our responsibilities. Uh, they are the democratic elected government, but we're also servant leaders for children. And that's our moral purpose. And we have to try and bring this notion that we're public servants and they're the democratic government on the one hand, and we are servant leaders to serve our staff and our children on the other hand, and our communities. And the message I was trying to give was both of those things. At the same time saying, we're heading for austerity, folks. I'm going to have to cut our budgets. And I was saying, it's right and proper, I said in that speech, that our budgets be cut first because we're a central organisation and that you protect... School, uh, school budgets, but even school leaders uh, in, their, in, a, in a more challenging environment polit politically and in austerity are going to have to make some tough decisions about how they're going to lead their schools. Okay, and then, so there's more of the story about the college, there's more about you being CEO of a, a, a significant MAP group, and I'm not going to talk about that, it's, it's all in the book, and we'll just finish with a couple of questions. One is, you travel a lot now, and you look in on the education system in the UK, and perhaps specifically in England, and specifically in Wales, and I know you work with both of those. And when you look in, what, what, what do you see? You know, are, are we doing better than perhaps we tell ourselves? And what would help us 
to do even better? What are the things we're doing which in Shanghai they definitely wouldn't be doing? And I'm referencing something you said at the ASCO conference last year when you were essentially talking about the pile of accountability that we weigh onto the shoulders of leaders and teachers. Okay, there's lots of great things about the English system. Um, and I, I do get a chance to travel all over the world now, work with systems in every continent. Uh, I, I, my own view is that the quality of school leadership is as good, if not better, than any other system in the world. There's a whole range of reasons why that is the case, partly the National College, partly the autonomy uh, that school leaders have in England, partly the resource that's been put into their development. But, but in addition to the fact that leadership is really, really good in England, as, as well as most of the systems... What shocks me about the English system, and you don't realise it as much when you're in it, is that there's no other system in the world where school leaders' job is more at stake based on examination results or an inspection than in England. No other system in the world where that's the case. And I'm talking, I include Shanghai, I include um, uh, Singapore, uh, I include anywhere. We put so much store on holding um, school principals to account for what's happened in their schools. Other systems are bewildered by this. They're bewildered by this. If you say to a Chinese, you went to China and say, we're holding our school principals responsible for all the performance of children in the examination results, they'd say, why? <laughs> they'd say, that's just as, what a school does is only a small part of, of, of the complexity of what of our children do in their examinations. Why would you hold the school principal to account for that? No other system would do that. Uh, and we're in danger uh, of having a system which has, has too much fear and too much pressure. Uh, and that's my big concern about the system in England. It's not that there aren't good things in England. It's not that there aren't some great schools doing fabulous things. But this notion of fear and top-down accountability instead of being responsible for my own school uh, to, be, to be accountable and responsible for my children and my teachers and the community. Uh, that notion of responsibility is a much better notion for me than this notion of top-down accountability. And in England, we've excelled at top-down accountability and not developed enough this notion of responsibility to myself, to, my, to the children I serve, to the community that I serve. Which kind of implies we need to be doing something differently, doesn't it? Uh, and we've got this atomised system now. Uh, but people are trying to rebuild across that, I think, and stop thinking in terms of structures and start to build partnerships. Is that what it's kind of feeling from your travels? Again, um, some of the partnerships that exist in England are some of the best in the world. They really are, some of them, exceptional. Uh, but overall, there's a shift around the world towards partnership working beyond the school. Uh, and I think there's, in, there's some great examples here in England of that happening through multi-academy trusts, through teaching school alliances, through other local partnerships. Really good stuff. But whenever you have a system that says the individual school and the individual principal is personally accountable for everything in that school and is measured against how they perform compared to other schools that partnership is harder to, to gel and make strong. And, and that's the, the tension that we have in the English system, more so than in most other systems, where collaboration and partnership working is the more natural instinct because of the accountability being less high stakes. And finally, Steve, you are someone who has led 
organisations have worked with leaders and I think unusually, in my experience, has read hugely about leadership. I, you know, one of the reasons I used to love the conferences at which you spoke is you referenced so much that I, I hadn't come across. And so you made us kind of deeper thinkers about all of that, and that's reflected in the book here. When you look back over your career in those different roles, what, what do you feel most, most proud of? And um, is there something you think, oh, I wish I hadn't done that? Uh, what am I proud of? Um, I'm proud of that for a time, uh, people felt that the National College for School Leadership was genuinely helping them to do their jobs. And it wasn't just one or two. There were thousands and thousands of school leaders who felt that. And I felt that my leadership helped to play a part in, 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 in making the National College more connected with their reality. And the other thing I'm really proud of is when, I was, when, when the organization I was leading was working in Kenya to try to get 81,000 girls who weren't going to school into school against all kinds of barriers, including the toilets and the, the water and food and, and, and culture not encouraging uh, girls to go to school. We had massive success through working in a partnership way uh, with a whole range of other partners. And we had thousands and thousands and thousands of girls who are now going to school, who weren't going to school, as a result of the work of the organisation that I was leading. And I'm very proud of those brave people who did that work. Wow, yeah, I'm sure. And a regret? Um, the book talks about a number of mistakes that I made, um, things that I got wrong. One of the things that I wasn't very good at, uh, wasn't sufficiently good at, was reading the context, the external context, and now it was changing. So you'll see me in the book say, um, we were having some success, and I carried on doing what, I'd be, what I had been doing, and not realising sufficiently quickly that the external context was changing, and it was time I did something different until it was too late, and then it was more painful to change. So one of, that, one of my regrets is not being good enough at spotting the context changing in my leadership uh, around, around the external context. I think that's a big issue for leaders, actually. It's not just um, being true to yourself as a leader. It's understanding your context and the kind of leadership that is now needed from you as opposed to the kind of leadership that was needed a year ago from you. And I think there were times when I was slow at that. Uh, and um, I suppose the other regret is um, uh, when I was working at Education Development Trust and we're struggling to, to turn it around because we had some serious issues, um, my, re my regret is that I, um, uh, I, I, I didn't get enough help in the early days uh, I, talk, I talk in the book about getting help, but I, I started to make myself ill. And, you, and that's in the book, how I wondered if I was seriously ill because I had suffering from such stress. And I should have learned earlier how to deal with that. But it's interesting, even though you think you know how to deal with stress, sometimes it, when it comes on you again, it's a, you have to relearn it all over again. And so that was a, a dark night of the soul for me when I was at, uh, in the first two years at CFPT, trying to turn around an organisation without sufficient help in the early days. Steve Mumby, the book Imperfect Leadership, a book for leaders who know they don't know it all. Thank you very much indeed. The Ask Leaders Reading Podcast with Jeff Barton.